If you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, continuing our series entitled Redeeming Genesis. And we, we talk about redeeming Genesis for two reasons. One, we want to redeem the power of the message of the first 11 chapters in Genesis. What we find is uh, often the Genesis accounts of creation and Adam and Eve and Noah and the Tower of Babel become nothing more than Sunday school flannel graph stories that are cute to remember but aren't necessarily um, earth-shattering sermons or earth-shattering passages of Scripture. And I'm here to tell you the first 11 chapters of Genesis are packed, I mean packed, with just amazing theology, building the ground for the rest of the Word of God. So I want to recover and redeem a little bit of that, that potent power of the Word of God at the beginning of Genesis. But I also want to talk about, really, the theme of the entire Bible that begins in these first 11 chapters in Genesis, and that is redemption. That God's plan from the beginning is to redeem His created people. And so we talk about redeeming Genesis, we're going to see God's redemption, his power to call us to himself in every single chapter that we study. And this morning we're talking about the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Now in Genesis chapter 1 we saw how God took the, created, uh, the, the chaotic waters and he created order out of the chaos. And this morning in Genesis 3 we're going to see how humanity has taken order and tossed it back into chaos. It was appropriate. I just thought of this on my way over here, and the girls told me not to say this, but I can't help it. This is our first Sunday of fall, and so we're going to be talking about the fall. Oh, everybody groaned. They told me not to say that joke, and I couldn't help myself. We're going to be looking at the fall of man this morning, how we went from being God's perfect creation into the chaotic mess that we see today. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to read through the book of Genesis in, in short spurts, a, a few verses here and there in Genesis chapter 3. Before we do, let's remind ourselves the importance of the Word of God by, by repeating these phrases confidently if you believe them. Repeat these after me. The Bible is the Word of God. What it teaches, I will believe. What it commands, I will obey. And when it convicts, I will change. Amen. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and it's going to begin with sin. Someone asked me just this morning, what are you preaching about today, preacher sin? And I said, yes. I actually get to answer yes, emphatically. But not a how-to sermon. Okay, we've got that part pretty well down. And so I want to talk a little bit about the lies we believe about sin. The lies we believe about sin. So let's just read Genesis chapter 3. We'll start just a, a verse or two at a time and, and kind of look at some of these lies that pop up at the very beginning that you and I, to this day, believe about sin. So let's start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Lie number one comes in the very first verse. Right? He's, he's living in perfection, Adam and Eve are. They're living in perfection, and the serpent comes along, and he asks a very important question. Did God actually say? 
did he actually command? Now, we can go back to chapter 2, and we can read that there are two focal trees in the Garden of Eden. There's lots of trees, but two that were drawn our attention to. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve can eat from any tree in the garden except for the one in the middle of the garden, that is, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, if you eat it, you're going to die. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. It's really a simple command. But right out of the bat, right in verse 1, the serpent, Satan, comes in and he doubts God. Did God actually say that? And one of the lies we believe about sin is that God doesn't really mean what he said. I know you guys are good uh, good Christian people, good Baptist people in a Baptist church, and we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We just said it confidently and loudly. We believe that what it teaches, we believe, and we believe that when it convicts, we'll change, we're going to obey its commands. We believe what God says is what God means, except when it comes to temptation. Have you ever noticed that when you're tempted to sin, all of a sudden God's Word maybe has a different interpretation? Did God really mean that when he wrote that? Is that really what God was trying to say? Or can I put a spin on it that maybe softens things a little bit? We like to blame our culture for being masters of this, of, of misinterpreting God's word. But you know what I found? When there's something I really want to do, even if I know it's not what I'm supposed to do, I'm really good at asking this question. Did God really mean what he said there? Is that really what God intended? Or maybe he had a different intention when he wrote the Bible than he does today. One of the lies we believe about sin is that, that even though the Bible says not to do something or commands us to do something, we don't really, really believe that that's what God means or intends. So we use a magic word. You ready for your Christianese word of the day? This is your magic word to get away with any sin and be able to do whatever you want and ignore the word of God. It's a magic word that we use in Christian language called interpretation. Okay? I'm going to interpret that verse a little bit differently. It doesn't really mean that because if you, you pull this verse out of context and you pull that verse out of context and you take my life experience, God couldn't have meant what he said there. So I know the Bible technically calls it a sin, you know, but that's not really what it means. I'm going to interpret it differently. That's a really dangerous lie to believe that God's word would actually mean something different than what he said. First lie, God didn't mean that. And then we get a little bit further, and, and the devil continues spinning lies. Look at me in verses 2 through 4. The woman said to the serpent, she tries to correct him, we may eat of the fruit of the trees uh, of the, uh, I'm sorry, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Did you catch lie number two. I know God said you would die, but that's not really what's going to happen. Try it out and see. The second lie we believe about sin is that it's not that bad. The consequences aren't really as bad as you think they are. It's like the devil's testing her out. Why don't you just take a bite and see if you drop over dead? By the way, not really a good bet to, to take, you know. Eat that and you might die. Still doesn't seem right to me, but he's got in her mind, you're not going to die. Here's the irony of it all. And this is important for us to learn too. When Eve ate the fruit, when she gave it to her husband, he ate the fruit. Did they in that moment physically drop over dead and ready to be buried? They did not. 
the consequences just weren't as bad as what God said they were going to be. Maybe sin is not as painful as we think it's going to be. The problem is we start believing that because we're not experiencing the consequences of sin immediately, that somehow God is not really going to punish us the way he says he will. Somehow things aren't as bad as the church or, or we make it out to be. The problem isn't that they didn't keel over dead on the spot. The problem was that something far worse happened in the moment that they ate the fruit. They begin to die physically, and sure enough, even though Adam lives centuries, he does die. But the worst part about it is not that he was going to now physically die, but he was separated from God in a spiritual death. We tend to believe, because we don't experience the consequences of sin immediately, that sin's consequences are not that bad. It's just a little bitty sin. Maybe we even categorize them. Well, at least I didn't kill somebody, right? I mean, I got a little upset, but I didn't slug them, right? It's not that bad. I told a lie, but who is it really hurting? It's just not that bad. Boy, the devil would love, to believe, love for us to believe that. For us just to focus in and say, sin is just not that big a deal. You're not going to die. You'll get over it. It's just a, a minor setback. You're going to be fine. Lies we tell about sin. God, I don't think it's as bad as you tell me it is. Continuing on in verse 5, the devil tells her, you're not going to die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This one's more subtle, this lie that the devil tells. But boy, is he good at believe, uh, causing us to believe this. What the devil says here is that, that God is keeping something from you. The third lie we believe about sin is that God is holding out on us. He doesn't want you to have fun. He just wants to keep you reined in. As if God created the entire cosmos and the entire universe, made you in his image, loved you so much that he breathed life into you just so you can be stuck in a box and not be able to have any fun in creation. Well, the irony here is, is that God gave them every tree in the garden except one. Eve even acknowledged it. We can eat of any tree. We can eat this one, that one, that one, but the one in the middle, we can't. And wouldn't you know that sin loves to tell us you're missing out on that one tree. The one tree you can't have is the one you're missing. And boy, if you just had it, you could be like God. You ever think, God just doesn't want me to have any fun. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be religious. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to be a Christian because God's just trying to keep me reined in. The devil would love for you to know, love for you to believe that God's holding out on you as if God didn't create the entire cosmos for your glory, for your, for your purpose. God's holding out on us. And then one more lie we read in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, immediately when they eat, we talked about this, they do not die physically. They don't kill over. But I've got to believe that tree that's been sitting in the middle of the garden for however long they'd been created looked appealing to the eye. She saw that it was good for food. I've got to believe she took a bite of it, maybe really enjoyed it, but ended up realizing it's another piece of fruit. <laughs> Just like that tree and that tree and that tree. 
one of the lies we believe is that that sin is as good as it seems, as appealing as it is. That we look at it, we see it's pleasing, we see it's desirable, we see that we want it, and we believe the lie that it's going to fulfill all our desires. Can I tell you a secret that preachers don't like to tell people? That, that they don't like to tell churches because you can really run with this if you want, but sin is really fun, <laughs> right? I mean, there are things we do when we sin that we, we really, really enjoy. And we can think ahead, all the things that we know we're not supposed to do, and go, but it'd be a lot of fun doing it. Right? We'd enjoy it if we did. The problem is that joy always is temporary. The fun that we have with sin always burns out. We always need more. It's never enough. And what we think is going to fix all of our problems, what we think is going to be the greatest joy of our life, ends up leaving a hole in our lives going, we have to have more. It's never enough. It's just another piece of fruit. It's just something else to pick off the tree and to eat. The lies we believe are that sin really is as good as it seems, as if all of our hopes and dreams and desires are going to be wrapped up in fulfilling this sinful action. So we see the fall of man and how they've completely lost all of the perfect order that God has created, and now they're spiraling into chaos. The next few verses just really unravel that. Share with us some of the many consequences of the action of sin entering the world. And so we read in verses 7 through 19, read along with me as we read about these consequences of sin. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Now before you jump past this and you go, see the eyes, they were open, they got something out of it. You know what they're experiencing here for the very first time ever? Shame. They realized, something's wrong with me. I need to cover myself. The way God created me is not good enough anymore. I, I need something else. There's guilt and there's shame immediately. The eyes of both of them being opened was not open to new glorious things that God had created. It was open to sin and guilt and shame. Continuing on, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's another consequence. Is we're not confident to be in God's presence anymore. We don't feel right being with God any longer. You know how many times I've heard someone say, I can't walk into your church, the roof would cave in. That's what sin makes us feel like. Like, I cannot be in the presence of God or else the entire thing is going to collapse. Spoiler alert, our roof has never caved in. Now, if you're here this morning and it does, my apologies, you got me, but um, it makes us feel that way, doesn't it? I've got to hide from God. I can't be in God's presence any longer. I need to separate myself from him. Continuing on, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, I was ashamed, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God already knows the answer of this. But he's wanting man to realize his shame and his guilt. That he had made a decision that was contrary to what God created him to do. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. This is my favorite Bible verse in all of the Bible. It's the one I quote the most. Every time I do wrong, I look and say, God, that woman you gave me. And uh, normally I end up sleeping on the couch. Um, the blame game begins 
right? The consequences of sin are that we don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. God, it wasn't me, the wife, the one you took from my room. Remember, God, you did this. I didn't ask for her. You saw that it wasn't good for me to be alone. You did something great and wonderful for me. It's your fault. You did this, God, the woman that you gave me. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The blame shifting continues. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot to unpack in that verse that, for time's sake, we're not going to have time to, but this is the beginning of God saying, there is one going to come, a descendant of humanity, one of Eve's great, 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 great grandsons who is going to come and take care of this sin problem. You're going to get a little nibble at his heel. It's going to be painful. The, the cross is going to be real and it's going to hurt, but ultimately Christ will crush the head of the devil. So we continue on. To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. By the way, this verse is not a verse to say this is how it should be. This is a result of the fall. That husbands, while you are called to lead your families, biblically you are called to lead as Christ loves and leads the church, you are not to rule over your wife. Women, you are now going to have a spirit that is contrary and desire to rule over. Now, this isn't just men and women. This is humanity. We all now have in us a desire for power and rule. And it's going to affect the marriage of Adam and Eve. It's not going to be perfect any longer. There's going to be an, an upheaval of how God created humanity. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now stop for a second. Why is the ground cursed? Because the devil who introduced temptation? No. Because of Eve who took the fruit and ate it first? No. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Because I created you, Adam. You were supposed to be in my image reflecting who I am. And you failed. Now the ground, all of creation, is cursed because of sin. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the promise of, of death. Adam, you're not dead yet, but you're dying. The clock is ticking, and there will be a day that you are buried in the ground just as I created you out of it. The consequences of sin are, are laid out, and these aren't even all of them. This is just the tip of the iceberg. This is what they can see and, and feel right now. The truth is all of creation, all of humanity, everything in the cosmos was cursed and broken. Because the lie of sin was that it was appealing. It was beautiful and it was good. It was going to fulfill all of their hopes, that it was going to give them what God was holding out, and, and sin can never live up to its promise. Thankfully, 
Genesis chapter 3 is not as depressing as the first few verses make it seem. This is a series entitled Redeeming Genesis. And the beauty of chapter 3 is that God doesn't close it there and say, good luck. But there are facts and truth about God's grace throughout the story, particularly in the latter half of this chapter. So we're going to wrap up by looking at some truths about God's grace to Adam and Eve and God's grace to you and to me. First, we realize that God delays his judgment. He is patient. We've talked about this several times. Adam is still breathing. The consequences is death and it's coming, but God waits. God doesn't give it all to him at once. Instead, he says, while the judgment will fully come, I'm giving you time to yearn after a relationship with me again. Reading in verse 20 and 21, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the next truth about grace and a beautiful truth about grace. That, honestly, these verses is where I spent a lot of time reading. And sermon-wise, we won't spend a lot of time talking about them. But you realize here, God sacrifices for the sins of Adam and Eve. Just, just looking at that verse, he, he created clothes for them out of skin. Where do you get skin from? He had to kill an animal. And here's what blows my mind. I asked on, on Facebook this week because I was curious, what kind of animal do you think that was? There's all sorts of ideas. Maybe it was a lamb showing the sacrificial uh, nature of a lamb. Maybe it, was, maybe it was something that's now gone extinct and we don't know what it is. Maybe someone said God just miraculously, spontaneously created skin. I don't buy that one. God, I believe, is showing us that something had to die for the sins of Adam and Eve. And here's what blows my mind. Right? I'm just a few seconds here. I don't know how long it was between day six of creation and chapter three where Adam and Eve sinned, but I think it was a very short time. I believe that because Adam and Eve are perfect. They're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And with their perfect health, they would have done that pretty rapidly. And they've got no kids yet. Honestly, I believe this is like day eight or nine. Like they, they messed up pretty quick, I believe. Perfection, no sin, no death. And if that's the case, I also believe, I, I don't know, but it seems right to me that just as God created a male and a female human, he created a male and a female of every animal. Maybe he created multiple, but, but what if God only created two of everything and on day eight or nine, he had to kill an animal? Literally, days after it was created, it's now extinct. The, the consequences of our sin don't always, don't always really come to fruit until we realize there's a good possibility that a creation of God was extinct within days of being made because of our sin, right? Because you and I, fell because of the decision that Adam and Eve made. Know this about God's grace. His love for you is greater than the creation of the world. He cares more about you than the, the continuation of an entire species, if that were the case. He cares more about you than the lamb or, or whatever animal might have been sacrificed. He cares more about you than anything else he has made. Last week, we talked about you being made in the image of God. That's not a mistake that that comes in chapter 2 before 3. We've got to get through our minds. While we buy into the lie of sin and we fall every time and the consequences are great, God created you and he loves you. 
He would sacrifice and give anything for you. What we find is, it's in the Old Testament, animals are sacrificed over and over and over again. Boy, you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read about a sacrifice. Not just of an animal, but God himself who puts on flesh and he dies for your sin. Think about the truth of God's grace that he would give anything to redeem the relationship with humanity. Last few verses, 22 through 24. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden and from Eden uh, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man and to the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We read this and this feels like God's last act of punishing. Get out of the garden. I don't want you in here anymore. You've messed it up, and you're banished. But notice the motivation for why God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. It wasn't punishment. That tree of life, apparently, it appears in Revelation as well. The tree of life, apparently, is what enables humanity to live forever. So if you eat of the tree of life, you now are living for all of eternity. And in the next life, we look at the new heaven and the new earth, and there is that tree of life again. We are able to eat of it freely and live forever in the presence of God. In this moment, though, humanity is fallen, unredeemed, and worthy of eternal separation from God in hell. And if they eat that tree in that moment, in that state, that's how they will live forever. So God says, hey, I don't want them messing it up again and staying like this forever. So he drives them out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve must have thought, what a horrible punishment. We've lost paradise. Now we're out in the desert, back in the chaos. We have nothing to provide for us. Look at all this hard work. Remember when the trees were abundant? God really has mad at us and punished us for driving us away. Do you know often when God disciplines us, when things are hard in our life, it's not God's condemnation, it's God's protection from condemnation? You know how often God looks at you and he says, I know the road you'll go down if I give it to you easy. So things happen in our life. We say, why God? Because God protects us. Why am I suffering? Because God loves you and protects you. Why am I losing loved ones? Because God cares about you and knows what's best. In our finite minds, you and I will be like Adam and Eve. We're going to leave the garden with our tail tucked between our legs and say, why God did you do this? And from the perspective of you and I and from humanity that's so easy to say, God, I'm going to believe those lies about sin again. You're just holding out. You just want to punish. Boy, that sin and that, that fruit really looked good. It was better. Somehow it was, it was great. And we go back to believing the lies of sin. Can I tell you, if you're suffering this morning, if you're hurting this morning, if you're struggling this morning, it's not because of the lies that God is holding out or God is trying to box you in. It's because God loves you and he wants to know you. So this morning, I wonder if, if we can look at our own lives and see how chaotic it is, how broken we are, and how far away from God we are. Maybe we've believed every single one of those lies about sin and said, God, I just think it's better. Can I promise you this morning that with all the lies that we hear, 
about how good the world can, can make things? Can we believe the truth about God's grace? He loves you infinitely, cares about you above all the rest of creation, and desires to redeem you through His Son, Jesus Christ.